All right, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 15 this morning. And the passage before us offers to Abraham assurances that God will fulfill his promises. And this is the third instance that the Lord has revealed his will and his purpose to Abraham. If we go back to chapter 12, he promised Abraham a land where he would make him a great nation and eventually bless all nations through him. Then at the end of chapter 13, the Lord reiterates that promise of the land and the blessing of the seed. The Lord says he will make the descendants of Abraham like the dust of the earth, which of course means they would be without number. Now we come to chapter 15. The Lord again reveals promises to Abraham and solidifies them by the Abrahamic covenant. And these promises were made and ratified by God alone. And the provisions of the covenant were to be fulfilled by God alone. The only responsibility on Abraham's part was just pretty much to believe what God says, to exercise his faith, which he did and which he uh, has continued to do since God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. But now we see that Abraham is entering uh, or, or entertaining some, some doubts and some fears about what God has promised. Now, that doesn't mean he's lost his faith, but sometimes faith needs assurances. He still has no child as an heir. He's not getting any youngers. The land is still controlled by Canaanite tribes. And when and how the Lord will deliver on his promises was a reasonable inquiry on his part. Abraham was a firm believer in the Lord and his word, but he needed some encouragement and some support for his faith. Now, we too are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have trusted him as our Savior, and as a result, we are recipients of many biblical promises. But sometimes we may entertain doubts and fears like Abraham did. How can we know we're really saved when we mess, so, uh, mess up so much in our walk with God? Um, when we look at our society, we see all the wickedness around us, the immorality, the corruption. Do we wonder if God's really in control? Uh, the Lord Jesus promised that he would return to the earth, yet 2,000 years has passed and still we wonder if he's ever going to come. When we face affliction, when we face hardship, do we wonder where God is? Do we wonder why he's allowing these types of things into our lives? And in such times, we need to think about the assurances the Lord gives us concerning his promises and exercise the same kind of faith that Abraham did. So as we look at this passage, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today for the Word of God. We're thankful, Lord, that it explains to us uh, your will, your purposes. And Lord, we're thankful for great men of faith in the Old Testament like Abraham, uh, who trusted you, Lord, but still there were times where he was a bit shaky, where he looked around and, and couldn't see any signs of the fulfillment of God's Word. And so, Lord, he wasn't afraid to ask you questions about it. And Lord, we pray that this would be an encouragement to us as we go through our journey of faith 
as we uh, face uh, foes and uh, troubles and tribulations and difficulties. Help us, Lord, to uh, keep our faith and keep trusting in you as Abraham did. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, our, uh, the structure of our passage today really falls into two parts, and they parallel each other. The first deals with God's promise of an heir. The second with the promise of the land that he had already given to Abraham. And each begins with the Lord's revelation of a promise, followed by an apprehensive question of Abraham. And then the Lord reassures Abraham with a sign. And verse 6 joins together these two uh, sections with a statement of Abraham's faith and God's declaration of righteousness because of that faith. And from this, we can derive uh, some assurances related to God's promises. First of all, the Lord promises to protect and reward his people in times of doubt and fear. We see that in the first five verses here. So let's take a look here at the Lord's promise to Abraham once again in verse 1. After these things, now that connects with the previous chapter, chapter 14, where he rescues Lot, uh, uh, who decided to dwell in a place different from Abraham and got in all kinds of trouble because of that bad choice. So after this occurs, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, this is interesting because this is the first time, the first reference in the Bible to the word of the Lord and to vision. And these two terms really relate to prophetic vision, to prophetic uh, word received from God by a human being. So our author wants us to understand that Abraham was a prophet. Later on, he will be called a prophet. But this relates him to the revelations that God gave to men directly. The word of the Lord came directly to him through this vision that he has. So Abram is in a very special relationship to the Lord, where the Lord actually speaks to him, and now he comes in some type of a a theophany or appearance of vision, and he again repeats his promise to Abraham. All right, so in this vision, the Lord states three things. First of all, he says, do not be afraid, do not fear. We have that term repeated uh, numerous times in the Bible. And it's always uh, to help us in a situation where we have these fears arise. Now, if you saw in a vision a divine being, would you be afraid? You probably would. And oftentimes, when a person is confronted by God like this, the first thing that God or perhaps an angel would say is, don't be afraid. Okay, good idea. Uh, before you can get those fears really going, the first thing he says, don't be afraid. But of course, not just being afraid of God coming to you in this vision, but hearing his voice and then thinking about things that may have caused fears in the first place, the Lord says, don't fear. Then he says, I am your shield. Now we all know what a shield is. It's a weapon of defense and protection, but metaphorically, it speaks of the protection that God gives to his people. Now, in the previous 
chapter, the Lord has been Abraham's shield. When he went with his very small force, he defeated a much larger force, the, the coalition of uh, Keterleomer, and he brought back the spoils. He was the victor. Uh, and in this, uh, this is interesting because the term that's used here of the Lord, I'm your shield, is actually the noun form that Melchizedek used when he came out and he blessed God back in chapter 14, verse 20. And he says, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So those two words are related. And God has been his shield in that particular time. He will continue to be his shield, his defense. If for some reason Abraham might have been fearful that this uh, coalition would reorganize and then come back and try to, to wipe him out, maybe the Lord was referring to that. The Lord says, if that were to happen, I will continue to be your shield and I will protect you. Then he says that he will be your um, exceedingly great reward. And most translations read, your reward will be exceedingly great. Now this again relates to that previous incident where Abraham refused to receive any profit, any spoil from the hand of the Sodomite king who offered it to him in exchange for the people. God himself is enough for Abraham. He will be his reward and he will receive far greater riches than mere earthly possessions. His reward's going to be an heir. It's going to be the land. And he's eventually going to be the blessing of the whole world. And God's saying that, Abraham, I'm all that you need. And, of course, we know in the New Testament, uh, the Lord is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, these promises hold true for us today as well. The Lord is our shield today, our protector in times of trouble. He is our reward uh, for saving faith, which includes all the spiritual promises of the New Testament. Now, let's go on and look here at the apprehension of Abraham in verses 2 and 3. He's concerned about this promised heir. And this kind of comes out in the way he questions God. Now, they've been in the land about 10 years now. So he's getting older, Sarah is still barren, and uh, it's becoming more and more doubtful that physically she would able uh, be able to have a child. And Abram says, Lord God, which means sovereign God, the one who's in control of all things, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? So the Lord has promised that he would have descendants like the sand of uh, the dust of the earth, and yet he doesn't even have a child yet. So you can understand why his faith was being challenged. And so he's asking the Lord about it. He says, Lord, you know, it's been 10 years. We still don't have a child. And the only one who could possibly become an heir is this Eliezer. And the neighbor said, look, You've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Now, this person could have become the heir. 
If he never has a child, if he would fulfill the responsibilities of sonship, he could bequeath to him um, all of, of the uh, uh, things associated with being an heir or a child. And it's interesting that the term heir is the same one used in Psalm 127, verse 3, translated reward. In other words, your children are your reward. Your children are your heirs, but they're also your reward, according to that verse. So this seems to be what was on Abraham's mind, rather than fearing Keterleomer may come back. He's thinking about what God has promised and how it's going to be fulfilled. Okay, so he asks him to look at the situation, to see his dilemma of faith, and he seems to be asking the Lord, is this the heir that you have intended for me? Is this supposed to be the one that you were uh, uh, promising? And he believes God's promise, but again, he's not sure how it's supposed to be fulfilled, how it's going to work out. So he asked the Lord to give him an assurance, some kind of indication that his word is going to be fulfilled. Well, the Lord does that. The Lord's assurance comes in verses 4 and 5, and it's a very emphatic response. Now, Abraham says, look, Lord, behold, Lord, and in response to that, The Lord comes right back and he says, look, Abram, behold, Abram, this is the way it's going to be. And it says in verse 4 again, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. And he doesn't even name Eliezer's name, indicating there's no way that this person is going to be involved in what I'm going to do for you. So, Uh, The Lord makes it very clear here, no, this is not the heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. So it's going to be from Abraham, he's going to have a son, there's no question about it. Now, this will produce in the next chapter another difficulty, because God doesn't say anything about Sarah, does he? That would be implied in our mind, but when we get to chapter 16, still no child from Sarah, so they devise their own plan with Hagar. That doesn't work out very well. So that's kind of giving us a little detail of what might happen in the future. Okay, then God gives him a sign. Verse 5, he brought him outside and said, look, there's again that word look, Behold, now toward heaven, look toward the heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. He's already used the, uh, the metaphor of the dust of the earth. Uh, now he's the Lord of heaven, he says, look up to the heavens, if you can count the stars, you can count your descendants. Of course, you can't really do that. And we found out since then that there are billions of stars. There's no way you can count them all. So again, the Lord's saying, uh, your, your descendants are not going to be countable. So trust me about this. And we too must continue to take God at his word. 
He has the power to make good on all of his promises, even though sometimes we may doubt, be doubtful, we may be fearful uh, concerning what his will is and what his purpose is. We always have to search the scriptures for that particular area where, where we may be doubting the Lord. That's what Abram has been doing. <clears throat> now, verse 6 is a key verse really in the whole Bible. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham believed, God counted that for righteousness. So let's take a look at those two parts of uh, uh, this statement that ties these two sections together. First of all, as I mentioned, uh, he believed in the Lord. This is a central verse in the Bible. If you don't believe in the Lord, you can't be saved. There's no, there's no other way of salvation except for faith and trust in God. And this verse is quoted four times in the New Testament, three of them in relationship to the necessity of faith, trust in God, without works to be saved. And the other instance is used in the sense of faith, being a demonstration or being demonstrated by your works. James uses it in that sense. And this is the first appearance then of the verb to believe in Scripture and the fact that Abram exercises faith in the Lord. It's a word that's associated with reliability, dependability, steadfastness, and is most often translated faith in the New Testament, trust in the Old Testament. Abraham has trusted the Lord as being reliable and true in his word. He can be believed. Abraham does exercise faith. But the construction of the sentence here is interesting because it does not indicate that Abraham responded to God's revelation for the first time here in faith. What it indicates is something that's ongoing, something that he's had really all along since God called him uh, out of uh, Ur and then Haran and brought him down to Canaan. Uh, so Abraham had already come to this point, and now it's being emphasized again, and it, can, it continues uh, he continues to exercise his trust, his faith, and what God says. And here's another opportunity, and here's another response, and this is his regular response to the things of the Lord. Now, we initially come to salvation by putting our faith in Christ as Savior from sin and death and hell. And we trust that he will forgive us of our sins and save us, by putting our confidence in Christ's work on the cross. But faith doesn't end there. That's just the beginning of it. It continues to grow and develop as we understand more and more of God's will from his word. Uh, and, and, and so this includes trusting all of his promises as we move forward in our journey. And that's what Abraham's doing here. Now, when this statement takes place, we also have uh, the Lord's action based upon it. The Lord accounts Abraham's faith for righteousness. 
Now, righteousness is a forensic term that alludes to one standing before God. We have no standing or righteousness before God on our own. The Bible says we're sinful creatures who cannot please God and we cannot save ourselves from sin. Before salvation, we stand before him as guilty sinners deserving of eternal punishment. But God is able to declare us right in standing with him when we place our faith in Christ uh, who sacrificed himself on our behalf. And so God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ and that changes our standing with God. He declares us right on the basis of the work of, of, of salvation of Christ and our trust in that. Now, that doesn't mean at that point we become totally righteous in our motives and our conduct, but what we are placed is in right relationship to God, and that's the important thing. Now, he accounted to him this right standing with God. He declared him right in his relationship to God. To account means to, uh, to credit something. Uh, for instance, if you have a bank account and you take in uh, $20 and you want to put it in your bank, they will take that and they will credit it to your account. They will put it on your account. So when Abraham trusted the Lord, <clears throat> he was conforming to God's standards of righteousness, which means believing in him. Uh, it was aside from anything Abraham did by way of, of some kind of work to please God. Uh, and he trusted what the Lord said. That's what God required. And so God uh, credits to his account righteousness, right standing before God. And that's what happens when we get saved. The Lord credits to our account the uh, salvation of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. Now, faith in what God says and what he's accomplished assures us of those promises. And in order for any of God's promises to apply to us, encourage us and help us, we have to trust them. We can't allow anything else in life, anything else that's going on to cause that faith to crumble or deteriorate. Now, that leads us into this last, the longer section, where the Lord assures his promises by a covenant, an agreement. So let's take a look at how this unfolds. First of all, in verses 7 through 11, as the Lord goes about assuring Abraham that not only will he have an heir, he's going to have this land. Uh, he repeats the promise, and he prepares for the covenant. Verse 7, Then he, meaning God, said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Okay, the first question had to do with the seed, the descendants. The second question now has to do with the land that God promised to him. The Lord here, this is the, the covenant name of God, whereby he as the eternally existing one condescends to enter a contract, an agreement with his faithful followers. And he reminds Abraham that he is the one who brought him out of that foreign land where he had been an idolater and uh, he's been good on his word to this point, bringing him here and enriching him in the land. 
Abraham addresses the Lord again as sovereign Lord, and he's again asking for an assurance as he responds to this statement of promise. And he said in verse 8, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now you can believe something and not know how it's going to work out in the end and still have faith and belief and trust. And so the Lord is now going to assure this man that what he says is going to come about. And we see here the preparation now for this covenant agreement, and he outlines it beginning in verse 9. So he, the Lord, said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he tells him he wants uh, these, these animals that will be involved in the sacrifice that will ratify the covenant. Abraham immediately responds in verse 10. He brought all these to him. He cut them in half, and he, he placed them on either side of what would be kind of a pathway between them. And then vultures come down on the carcasses, and Abraham drives them away. Well, what does all this mean? Well, the Lord's going to, he's setting up a covenant that would have been something uh, relevant to the time in which they lived. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, And these vultures, uh, which are, are birds of prey, begin to swoop down and try to peck away at the, uh, the, the raw meat there that they're used to uh, eating. So really, this is kind of a symbolic thing of future events. At Mount Sinai, the Lord introduced himself in the same way. He said, I am the Lord. He then gives the people the law, which is ratified by covenant, And, of course, his covenant here is with Abraham and his descendants. The birds of prey really kind of are representative of the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of the nation that will develop from Abraham. And he's kind of the protector, so to speak, of what's going on here. So he's the guardian of the covenant at this point in time, looking to a future date when the descendants are going to have to deal with a lot of foes and enemies. But let's look at verse 12 now. The fulfillment of this promise is going to come after a time of suffering and affliction, and it's going to be way down the road in the future. And the Lord reveals that his promise uh, is going to be preceded by this period of oppression. Now, verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, which we assume was uh, God's doing. And as he's in this deep sleep, there's a sense of horror and great darkness. Now, again, oftentimes when people come into this kind of a, an experience with God, there, there's this deep sense of fear because 
you're you, a, a mere human, and here, there's God who's perfect, eternal, powerful, and all these kind of things. So that is probably involved in this. But also, there is an indication here as we see how God reveals himself and what's going to happen to the future descendants, a sense of, of, of horror and darkness because they're going to go through a time of uh, great difficulty and oppression. So these things, these feelings are probably uh, coming upon Abraham and they're symbolic as well as uh, things he actually felt. And the Lord now gives a, a brief prophetic picture of the future when the promise will be fulfilled. So if you look at verse 13, then he said to Abram, no, certainly. In other words, this is definitely going to happen. It's certain to happen that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. So they're going to be sojourners, strangers. That's the idea there. That means that you are in a country and you don't have any citizen rights. This is like people entering our country. That would be their status. And this is the status of Abram when he came into Canaan. He's dwelling there, but he doesn't have any rights of citizenship yet. So this is, a, this is prophesying what's going to happen in the future. And they're going to serve the people of that land to serve. The, that can mean become a slave. We know that's going to happen. And they, the land in which they are sojourning, will afflict or oppress them for 400 years. Again, we go uh, to the future. We go to the book of Exodus and the other books of the Pentateuch. We go to the New Testament. We know that the sojourn of Israel in Egypt turned sour. And for 400 years, they were under captivity. So again, is that a real good outlook for the future? No, it's not. <clears throat> but the Lord goes on here. <clears throat> he says in verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And of course we know that God judged them with the ten plagues. Pharaoh kicked them out. And when they went out, they all got all kinds of goods and possessions from the people because they wanted to get rid of them. And the Lord says afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now you go back to when Abraham went down into Egypt. What happened? Pharaoh kicked him out. And when he went out, he went out richer than when he came in. So that was kind of like prophetic as well. But this is what's going to happen in the future. And the Lord says, uh, he doesn't give a lot of definition here, but he puts it way out there. Now, 400 years is a long time. Abraham obviously isn't going to see this all happen. So in verse 15, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, which will be 175. So he's going to escape the oppression. Of course, he's going to have problems in his own life, but he's going to escape this oppression. He's going to go uh, uh, to uh, his, his grave in peace. But this should be an assurance to him that God is going to work out this problem. And in Hebrews 11, it says all these great people of the past were given promises, but they never saw them, but they still believed in them. So their faith is operative. Then God says in verse 16, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
Okay, so four generations back then, we could figure, well, that means that one generation is about 100 years because of the excessive age of people then. Uh, so about 400 years. And then they're going to come back into the land. And here again, we see the grace of God. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. One of God's purposes will be to um, punish the uh, Canaanites. We've seen this really from the beginning almost. The Amorites, this is just a, a generic name either for a tribe in Canaan, sometimes it's used for the whole people of Canaan. So God's saying that in the future, your, your people are going to come back, your descendants are going to come back, and they're going to conquer this land, but if I'm going to give these people four centuries, four centuries to repent, to turn away from their, their heinous acts of worship, but they never do it. So we see the, the grace of God there in giving people all this time to see the truth, to see the, the God that Abraham worships and his descendants worship, but it doesn't change them. And eventually God will judge these people as well. The Lord's people today are guaranteed a great future, but they also are warned that it will not come without tribulation. We will one day get to glory. We'll see Christ. We'll abide in the new earth and the new heavens. We'll be blessed forevermore. However, in this life, we're going to face oppression and hardship and doubts and fears. There are going to be crosses to bear. There are going to be foes to fight and burdens to be carried. But in the end, it's going to be more than worth it all, as it would be to Abram. Now, the last thing we want to note here is it is the Lord himself that secures these promises. Even though they're extended way out in the future, he can be sure that God is going to fulfill his word. Now, in ancient covenants, both parties in the covenant would usually pass between these sacrificial animals. They might be equal to each other and agree to certain stipulations in this, this uh, covenant. Or one party might be greater than the other, and uh, putting stipulations on the lesser party, and in turn saying, well, I'll protect you if you do this, etc., etc. And they would both go through there and make that agreement, and pretty much they would be saying, may we become like these dead animals if we go against what we promised to do. Now, this is a little bit different than that, because now the Lord ratifies the covenant. He guarantees that what he's promised is going to come to pass. It's an unconditional covenant, uh, which Abraham simply needs to trust in what God's going to do. And God gives him now a sign that represents his presence and his power. Verse 17. It came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So the Lord's making the covenant, and he's making his presence known to faithful Abraham. The smoking oven, or the fire pot, and the burning torch. The fire pot was used for baking bread 
or roasting grain that was used for sacrifices. And here it represents the Lord passing between those pieces of sacrifice to ratify that promise. And later on, the Lord's going to come down on Mount Sinai. How is he going to come? He's going to come in smoke. He's going to come in fire. He's going to come in darkness and lightning. It's his presence, his powerful presence being represented there. And he will lead his people later on by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And these are symbols of his powerful presence. As the Lord completes this covenant, He maps out very briefly the boundaries of the land that he's going to give to Abraham. He says in verse 18, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt. Now that's likely not the Nile. Uh, That is one of the northernmost tributaries uh, of the Nile of that region that became the southern border of Israel to the great river, which is the river Euphrates. So this was a, a large tract of land. And then he mentions the peoples or some of the peoples that will be conquered. And I think the significant thing here is he names 10 tribes. And 10 in the Bible is a number of completion of fulfillment. So the idea that, that all the nations is going to be defeated and given uh, to Israel. And God says this is definitely going to happen. So there is the outline of the Abrahamic covenant. And you may wonder, well, what in the world does that covenant have to do to us today? Well, really, its ultimate fulfillment is in the new covenant. And that is uh, the New Testament of, of the believer today. The promises given to Abraham are really uh, totally fulfilled in the new covenant that was ratified in the sacrifice of Jesus our Savior. And in that covenant, God promises to save those who trust in his son from, uh, 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 from their sin and from eternal death and from hell. And he promises to forgive us to give us eternal life, to give us the fullness of his spirit, to give us victory over our spiritual foes, uh, to give us the hope of heaven in the future, and all these great promises. Uh, he, he promises to bring us to uh, the eternal promised land, which is heaven. He promises to give us a new and glorious body fashioned after that of the Lord Jesus Christ. He promises to make us citizens of heaven and the new Jerusalem, and serve him in the new heavens and the new earth. And when we think of these eternal promises, they're still for us out in the future. We don't know how far. And that should remove any doubts and fears we have concerning our future, what God has in store for us, in spite of all the stuff that goes on in the world today. But we always need to remember that the path to glory is not easy. It's not a bed of roses. Before the crown, there are going to come some crosses. Before glory, we're going to go through trial and testing and tribulation. And it's our faith in God's promises that will carry us through and keep us trusting in the Lord. So that's what uh, I think uh, we're, we're being taught by Abram as he continues to walk with God in faith, even though he still needs some assurances like we do. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again today 
for your goodness and your grace to us. We're thankful, Lord, that as you assured promise, um, Abraham that your word was true, that it was secure, that you would fulfill it. Help us, Lord, to keep trusting that that is uh, truthful today, that everything that you promise us by putting our faith in Christ will come uh, to bear. And even though we go through some difficulties in this life, we know we have a great future in store for us as well. Encourage us, Lord, with these thoughts we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.